This is the Humans of Gaming Podcast, an open and honest conversation about games, life, and belief. Hey, Drew Dixon here, Chief Content Nerd at Love I Nerd and co-host of the Humans of Gaming podcast. I want to tell you a little bit about what you're about to hear because it's a little bit different from our average episode. We were recently at Gen Con, which is North America's largest tabletop and board gaming convention. And while we were there, we did what we like to do. We talked to game designers. But there are so many amazing, talented and creative game designers at Gen Con that we couldn't talk to just one. We wanted to talk to a whole bunch of them. So you're going to hear a bunch of shorter interviews on this on this podcast from some of the most fascinating uh, board game designers in the industry. This is part one of a three-part series that we're going to be doing with game designers at Gen Con. So in this episode, you'll hear from Catherine Stipple, who made a game called Nyctophobia, which is inspired by her relationship with her uncle who happens to be blind. And so players actually play that game uh, with blackout glasses, uh, all except one player who can see the board, uh, and they play against each other. Uh, You're going to hear from Tim Fowers, who has made Now Boarding and Burgle Bros and Sabotage. You'll hear from Gil Hova, who's made The Networks and Wordsy and Bad Medicine. You'll hear from Kurt Covert, who is involved in perhaps my favorite game, one of my favorite games of Gen Con called Before There Were Stars, which is by far the best storytelling game I've ever played. You actually craft your own creation narrative. How did the world begin and, and, and how does it end? And, and you do so in a way that's really, really beautiful and allows for people to tell diverse stories in a fascinating way. Uh, we also talked to Michael Fox and R- Rory O'Connor, who are from Hub Games and are making a game called Holding On the Troubled Life of Billy Kerr, which actually places players in the shoes of medical staff trying to care for a patient who is going to die. Um, And so it deals with trying to keep this patient alive, but also with giving him palliative care and caring for him on a personal level. That's the first game I've ever played, I think, that actually made me tear up. It hit me in a really powerful way, which board games don't always do. So... I hope you really enjoy this series. Chris Gwaltney, my co-host, will not be with me on this series of podcasts. And again, this will be part one of a three-part series that we're doing at Gen Con. I don't think anyone's really doing this kind of thing in the tabletop space. I've never heard these types of questions leveled at board game designers, so I hope you find it really interesting. And I may be wrong about that. There may be other people doing these kind of interviews, or even better interviews, or deeper interviews with game designers. And if so, I'd I'd love to hear about it. But uh, I don't think anyone's asked these types of questions to board game designers and compiled them in this type of way. Uh, So I'm really excited about it. I hope you like it. Um, it, it, If you want to send me feedback, send that to drew at lovethynerd.com. And uh, without further ado, here is our Gen Con interviews, beginning with Catherine Stipple. Catherine Stipple? Did I say it right? Stipple. Okay. Yeah. Cool. What, what's the origin of that? I think it's German. Okay. Maybe. I don't okay, know. Cool. And where are you from? Uh, I'm from Long Island, New York. Cool. Awesome. And tell me a little bit about nyctophobia. What makes it unique? Yeah. So uh, nyctophobia, the word means fear of the dark. 
and it's unique because all but one player is playing the game with blackout glasses on, so you can't physically see the board, and it has to all be played through touch. Yeah, and so you're survivors trying to escape an axe murderer, is that right? Yeah, so the game comes with two different uh, decks. You can first the axe murderer or a mage. Yeah, yeah. cool. And uh, if you had to narrow it down to one thing that you hope players gain from their time playing Nyctophobia, what would it be? What do you, what, what do you hope players get out of their, t their game experience? Um, I think it's just a totally different viewpoint on how games can be played. I have a blind uncle and that's where it came from, so being able to sit in his shoes for just like 30 minutes is a really cool, unique thing. Yeah, and uh, you know, there's probably not a lot of games that have been made with vision-impaired people in mind, so that, that's really cool that you've, you know, d that you've began with that premise. You know, you could have made a, a million different games, why this game? Yeah, I think it just sort of happened. I, I got the theme really quick of being lost in the forest because that was a natural dark setting. And I come from, I do a lot of co-op gaming. Yeah. So having the four blind players just uh, was really where it came from, I think. Okay. Yeah, cool. And uh, what, uh, have you designed other games before? Is this where... Uh, this is my first time designing anything and my first time getting published. Okay. That, that must be exciting for you. Oh, yeah. I wasn't expecting to do anything with it because it's so manufacturing, the challenges yeah. with that, with all the plastic 3D pieces. Yeah. I knew that was going to be a challenge and whether, like, Pandasaurus had the guts to put in all the work to get it published yeah. out. Yeah, that's cool. How's the reception been so far? Uh, most of the stack of Nyctophobia is gone, so, yeah. so well, that's crazy. Yeah, congrats. That's awesome. And uh, last question I like to ask designers is, why do you make games? What, what drives you to do this? Yeah. Um, I like, when I'm trying to design games, I like to attach it to someone I care about. So, like, Nyctophobia is like a gift to my uncle. Yeah. So that's, I try to design it as, like, gifts to my family and friends. Yeah. Awesome. It's great. Well, we really enjoyed playing it. It was great to meet you. I'm here with Scott Rogers, and you are the designer of Pantone. You've worked on some other games in the past as well. I have. Um, this is my second published board game. Okay. My first was Ray Guns and Rocket Ships through IDW Games. Um, but many years before that, I worked in the video game industry. Okay, what did you do in the video game space? Well, I started as an artist. All I'm so old that I was back on 16-bit Genesis and SNES games, yeah. which is where the idea for Pantone eventually emerged from. Um, but for many years, I did game design. I worked at companies like Namco and Capcom and Sony, and I've worked on games like the original God of War, Pac-Man World, the Maximo series, Soul Blade, Darksiders, Drawn to Life, and a lot of SpongeBob SquarePants. Oh, that's cool. That's cool. So what drew you to make board games? Ah, well... Um, Tabletop. Yeah, well, so working in video games, one of the my biggest complaint about them is they're fantastic, but if the power goes out, you just have a very nice coaster. And right. I, I love toys, and I love things that are toyetic, things that you can mm. handle and manipulate and, and create things with. Right. And so when I was designing my first game, it's a miniatures-based game set in like a 1930s universe. Yeah. And so it's uh, very much about these little characters, and you're in spaceships, and you're fighting each other. And I wanted to make like these little miniatures like ones in games that I grew up with. Yeah. Um, and um, and so uh, I kind of launched myself in this, and I'm like, I really like this game. It's really fun, because I originally wanted to make it as a video game, but everybody was like, we don't quite have the technology to do all the things you want to do at the time. Yeah. And so I said, what would be the best way for me to make this without all this money and all these other people? I'll make it as a board game. I can do it by myself. 
So I so I created it by myself, and then I went. I, I when the game was ready, I'd play tested it and all that. I uh, I was asking some friends of mine, where's a really good place to go to try and sell it? And everybody said you have to go to Gen Con. Gen yeah. Con is the place to go right. to sell a game. And so I packed. I, I booked a bunch of appointments and I put the game under my arm and I went to Gen Con and I sold it to IDW and it's it came out last fall. And uh, it's a real thing, and it's very yeah, exciting. That's cool. I highly recommend anybody who wants to make games, just do it. You don't need to wait for anybody right. to tell you to do it. It's so easy to make games nowadays. There's so many great services like Print and Play or Game Crafter where you yeah. can make it for really inexpensively. And once it exists, I mean, if, if you just want the game to exist, it can exist. But yeah. if you want to sell it to a publisher, then I recommend coming to a place like Gen Con with your game. Yeah, that's cool. And your latest game, Pantone, uh, give us like the quick pitch on that because it's I played it uh, well a couple times now since I've been here and it's really hilarious and fun yeah I, I call it the drawing game for people who can't draw yeah uh, essentially uh, you have these colorful cards like the paint swatches you see at paint stores or in art stores and um, you get about 15 different colors and then you get a bunch of cards with characters on them and they're all based on pop culture or characters from books movies comic books animation or even some real life characters uh, and you create your own version of that character Character using these color cards. It's almost like pixel art, like 8-bit pixel yeah. art. And, um, and then everybody has to guess uh, who it is, and then you, you take turns, you have rounds of play, and the criteria for creating the character becomes progressively harder as you go. But it's a really great party game. It supports from 2 to 20 different players, and uh, it's very pretty. It's a very colorful yeah. uh, game, and uh, it's very quick. Very quick yeah. to learn, very quick to play. Yeah. I actually work in publishing, and uh, we have to work with Pantone swatches to choose the colors for our covers and layouts and things. And uh, so when I heard there was a board game with color swatches, I thought, that's hilarious. And uh, we, we tested it out a couple times here at Gen Con, and yeah, I can, I can attest that I'm terrible at drawing, and that didn't help me that much with Pantone, but I still had a blast because, you know, you can guess, if you're good at guessing what other things are, you'll have just as much fun with a game as if you're, and, and if you're terrible at it, at, you know, making shapes with the swatches, it still works really well because I think that makes it a really hilarious time. People... If you can't figure out what something is, it just gets more and more funny. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, and I, what I find fascinating about the game is everybody carries a mental image in their head of these characters, and not everybody's is the same. So, for example, when I first was uh, playtesting uh, play the game, I made a, a character out of three cards, and it was blue, gray, and yellow. Yeah. And then I gave him a clue, and I said, superhero. And he kind of looked at me with this blank look in his eyes, and I went, mm, wait a second. And I changed the cards, and I put black, yellow, and black. And he goes, oh, Batman. Yeah. And so, you know, right. to him, to me, because I'm old, I, I remember the old 70s, 80s yeah, Batman, yeah, totally. but he was like, you know, younger, he knew the, the one from the movies. Right. So uh, to everybody, everybody has a different mental picture, and that's one of the things I love about the game is that not just the creativity, but the, the kind of the images we carry around with us. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, my friends would not stop making fun of me because I made a mask of Boba Fett, and I made it gray. And they were like, it's not gray, it's, it's green. They got really well, the upset. action figure was gray, right? Yeah, I mean, like, I actually pulled it up on my phone. I was like, look, it looks, <laughs> it looks more gray than green. Like, I have I have heard more arguments at Gen Con. Uh, two ladies, I thought they were going to come to blows over what color Elmo's nose was. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's orange, clearly. Yeah, of course. Yeah, everybody yeah, yeah. knows it's everybody orange. Everybody knows that. Yeah, cool. Um, and so if you had to narrow it down, I know your games, your two published games are pretty different, but yeah. if you had to narrow it down to one thing, 
that you hope my games. Yeah, that you hope players gained from their time playing your games. What would it be? Well, you can answer that separately for each game if you want. Well, I, I, what I like in common with I mean, even though Pantone and Reagans and Rocket Chips are super different games, what I like about them is they're games that people see and they understand immediately. Yeah. Like when you see Reagans and Rocket Ships, you're like, oh, I'm flying a ship around. I have little guys to do it. They're going to fight each other. Where you look at Pantone, you're like, oh, I'm making characters out of these color swatches. I like, I want games that people, when they walk by, not only they understand it, but they also go, ooh, that looks really cool. I want to yeah. give it a try. I want to put my hands on it. And once again, that goes back to that idea of the toy nature, right? Where right. the you want to get your hands on it. You want to start engaging with it. So hopefully all the designs that I create in the future, that's, that's kind of my guiding star, is that I want it to be something that people want to play with and touch and not just have fun playing the game, but even just playing with the game. Right, totally. Cool. Yeah, and uh, one last question I like to ask designers is why do you make games? What drives you to do this? Well, I have kind of a twofold. One, I'm a creative guy. My wife says I'm like a beaver where I'm always gnawing. I can't, oh, I cannot stop making games. So part of it is just compulsion. But the other part of it is I worked in video games for a very long time and I made a lot of companies a lot of money. And I never really got credit for that work. I'd be in the manual or maybe in the credits after the game was over. But I always wanted to have something with my name on the cover just because I always felt proud of my work and I wanted to make sure that people knew that I was responsible for it. So whether you love it or hate it, you knew who to blame. Yeah. And so when I published Ray Guns and Rocket Ships with my name on the front, I'm like, yay, I did it. I finally, you know, got something that is my, truly mine, to, yeah. that, that represents things that I'm interested in and, and the gameplay that I wanted to present to the world. And so going forward, I'm very proud of the things that I create and I, I just want people to know it because I, I love engaging them when they go, oh, hey, you're Scott Rogers. You're the guy who made Pantom. I've already had people People come up to me at this show and I always get a thrill mainly because yeah. it gives me an opportunity to thank them for finding out about the game and, and in many cases they bought it so yeah. I like to I like to appreciate the people that I've met that's uh, helped uh, support me yeah absolutely that's cool yeah and that's a major difference between as someone who covers both video gaming and, and tabletop uh, that's the big difference between here and say like Pinny Arcade or something you're when you see people's games in those spaces you, you you know you get to meet the designers there and that's great but you know it's on the box of every every board game yeah, and I appreciate that like it yeah. or not we're responsible yeah yeah but it gives people an opportunity to, to see that there's hey there's a human being behind this right. product and this this thing and, that I get to enjoy and I, I think part of that is the nature of the board game industry because you cannot play board games without other people yeah. right where video games it's very easy to just get engrossed by yourself and nothing against video games I've made a very good living making video games but that said I love the human connection and I and that's what I love about coming here to Gen Con yeah absolutely well it's a great it was a pleasure talking to you, Scott. I'm here with Tim Fowers of Fowers Games, and uh, yeah, we're here at Gen Con, and uh, yeah, how's it been going so far? Uh, great, great, we're off for a great first day, lots of, you know, lots of people coming by, buying games, it's good. Cool. Yeah, and you have a lot of games that uh, I think our community has checked out before. I know we have fans of Burgle Bros and Love Letter, um, but you have some new-ish sort of games. Tell us about the new ones. Yeah, I mean, generally I, I try to stick with, like, co-ops, and even when I do, like, direct conflict, it's more, like, asymmetric. So, like, Fugitive, which came out last year, it's like one person's chasing, one person's running. Um, but the new ones, um, Nowboarding, it's a co-op, uh, a co-op, a puzzly co-op where it's it's pick up and deliver, um, and there's a little bit of a real-time element. 
So basically, everyone gets ready, and you make a plan, and then like you start a timer, and everyone has to move their planes and pick up and drop off passengers in like 30 seconds. It's pretty dramatic. So uh, if you had to narrow down to one thing, what do you hope players gain from their time playing now boarding? Oh, um, I mean, a lot of it's about uh, trusting other people. Because it's like, okay, I'm going to drop this guy off, and he's going to be getting angry here, and you're going to get him. He's like, yeah, I got him. And so it's all about the handoff. Um, and a lot of times that will happen in real time. And you'll be like, no, no, wait, oh, wait. before Because when the timer starts, anybody can take their turn in any order. You're only limited by how much movement your, your little plane has. So you can be like, okay, you wait. I'm going to run in. I'm going to drop this passenger off. You're going to pick them up and take them the rest of the way. So you can do these cool handoff moves where you feel like your teamwork was able to deliver the passenger like one turn. So. And that uh, those different roles that people have to take on maybe helps combat quarterbacking a little bit? Oh, yeah, well, the timer really locks that down because you, you flip the timer and then there's a couple of new passengers that pop up and you don't know what those passengers are until the timer starts. So that combats, you know, alpha gamer type stuff. Um, and you just have to rely that everyone's going to make the best choice they can during that, during that time. So, um, but, I mean, there's plenty of time before that to plan and there can be some quarterbacking there. But it's a complex enough problem that everyone's just trying to, like, solve their thing. You know, it's like, okay... And everyone kind of has a region. So you have certain shortcuts of flights that you can take that no one else can take. And so you're like, well, you know, so you want to stay in your area so that you can be uh, saving everybody time. Like, you're like, okay, no, I got it because it's really quick. If you do it, then you're going to have to go all the way around. But I got the shortcut. So, I mean, specialization in general lets people feel like I had a unique thing to contribute to the group um, because, because of my speci- specialization. So... Um, you've made a lot of different types of games. Would you say there's, is there one, um, one thing that ties them all together, one thing that you hope to hope players experience with all your games? Uh, no, I mean, I, I have, when I'm designing from like an emotion, there's some pretty distinct ones. Like, I don't do all co-ops, right? I mean, if anything's tying it together, it's the art. We've been using the same artist for 12 years on all my different games. And so we've kind of created this universe, like Burgle Bros, and then the characters are splitting off and and telling different stories in that universe. Um, So, I mean, mean, a lot of it is about uh, about teamwork. Um, Even even, uh, our new game, Sabotage, on Kickstarter, um, it's it's teams. So even though it's like two guards versus two spies, uh, you're at least working with somebody. And, and we really think that there's this whole process of, in a game, about vulnerability. That, like, I, you know, there's a thing I can't do, or, like, even in video games. Like, you know, I get knocked down by a zombie, and I'm pinned down, and I can do nothing. And you come up, and you, you know, you knock the zombie off and shoot him or whatever, and then you put your hand down and you pick me up. And so that whole, like, cycle of vulnerability is how, uh, is, is how people, like, form relationships. It's just like, I, I couldn't do anything then, and you cared enough to stop shooting other things and came, come and save me, and then you'll do that, for, and I'll do that for you, you know? And that's, that, I think, is at the core of a lot of uh, a cooperative games, where I have a specialization, um, and, and thinking for the, the team instead of thinking for yourself, so. So does that motivate you then, like, uh, to continue making games and seeing people experience moments of vulnerability together? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's how people, that's how humans, like, form relationships is, is vulnerability. It's like, I'm putting something out there, and you, and you think that I'm important enough to save, and so now I feel like part of the group because, you know, I, I shared something with everybody, you know, and, and, and you guys didn't reject me. I mean, there's, a really, there's some really good TED Talks about, about they're finding just now that a lot of how human, humans form relationships is tied around vulnerability. 
So that's cool. Um, and you maybe already kind of answered this, but I like to ask designers what drives you to do this. What drives you to make games? Oh yeah, I can't not make games. I mean, but a lot of it is just like I feel like I've you know like when I make a game, I found something. And I don't feel like it came from me, and so I feel I have an obligation to share it. Like it's not, it's not mine. I'm just, I'm the courier, and so now I've got to get it out to other people, um, or I'm just being selfish. So, yeah, and it helps too because it's like, you know, I can look at a game and I'm like, yep, that's a good game because it's not mine. You know, it's just like, oh, it's, you know, so I definitely believe in inspiration. So, yeah, yeah, and it seems like there's a, a generosity there in you and the way you make games and the way you partner with people because you don't even you know these are games you've designed but you don't even kind of think of them as as belonging to you in a way uh, no I mean I mean a lot of it's paying it forward I've had a lot of people help me and a lot of it and sometimes when I was getting started some of these people didn't help me but I but I'm I'm mentoring a lot of people right now as game designers actually I run a conference for board game designers called Tabletop Network uh, we did it in June and it's just designed to be like here are some best practices of how to design and so I do Skype calls with a lot of people. I'm really open because this is what I, I would have wanted when I was getting started. Just somebody to talk to, to give me the time of day. Because I always felt like I was chasing designers around, and they were just kind of too cool to spend any time. And so I, I make sure to, to encourage designers and, and, and spend time with them. Cool. And Sabotage, I, ju I just noticed that the other day, just a few days ago on Kickstarter. Um, the Kickstarter is going right now, is that right? Two more weeks. Yeah, yeah. So uh, that's the, yeah that's the, that's the new one. It's a little more complex than my other games, and it, it's got a fun like you know uh, deduction. One team is like hunting, and the other one is like trying to like get in and hack something. But as soon as they hack something, the other team gets to know where they're at, and so they got to get out of there. And so it's this like cloak and dagger, but there's it's like a Burgle Bros level. It's only like eight, uh, 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 sixteen squares, so there's nowhere to hide. I mean, so you have to outsmart them. You have to be like, yeah, you think I'm here because. When, you, when they use one of their weapons, like a taser, to, to try to hit the spies, if they're in that room, they're hit. There's no, like, roll to hit. They might miss you. You have, to, you have to be somewhere else and make them think you're there. And so there's this whole outwitting game going on. It's, uh, I don't know, it's, it's different than anything I've done. There's, there's inklings of Burgle Bros in there, but you've definitely got... It's almost like Burgle Bros where one team is the guards and the other team are the Burgle Bros. So... Yeah, I like it. Well, we'll look forward to checking that out. Uh, definitely look for uh, the Kickstarter of Sabotage while there's still time, and uh, be looking. You can play now boarding now, and uh, and the third version of Walkstar as well. So, yeah, thanks, Tim. Appreciate it. Yeah, so Gil, um, your, your last name's Gil Hova. Am I saying it right? That is correct, okay, yes. Okay, cool. That is exactly and right. What is the, do you know what Hova, where does that come from? <laughs> it doesn't come from anything. So here is a really super interesting story. My family name uh, was originally Hawa. Uh, okay. my, uh, that's my dad's side of the family, uh, which has its roots in Iraq. Okay. Uh, my dad was actually born in Iraq. Uh, and he was moved to Israel by his parents when he was three. This is just when Israel was founded in, I want to say, 1942. I'm terrible. I can't remember. Anyway, yeah. so um, so my dad, um, you know, always considers Israel where he grew up. That's his, his home area. But okay. Hawa is, um, you know, it, it's, it's sort of an Iraqi name. But it also translates to Eve. Okay. And my, my dad's very old country. That side of the family is very old country. Okay. So 
they hated having a feminine last name. Okay. So <laughs> he changed it. He played with the syllables, changed it from Hawa to Hova. Okay. So Hova doesn't mean anything. Ah, I got it. At least not until Jay-Z came around, and apparently Just it means... Just because Hawa yeah. was too feminine. Exactly. Jay-Z exactly. uses that term? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. what does that mean for him? Oh, it's, it's like a Jehovah kind of thing. Oh, And gotcha. that's where Hawa comes okay. from. Like, that's Jehovah's, that's the Hawa thing. Gotcha. You know? Okay. So, I track with um, you now. Yeah. So it's... Yeah, it's a very... It's a very weird last name. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Cool. And uh, and you made the networks. Yes. And you've made some other games as well. Can yes. you give us like a like a overview of some of the, the games you've designed? Starting with the networks? Yeah, just like a super quick. Sure. The networks, you're a TV network executive. You start the game with a little bit of cash and three terrible TV shows, and you're trying to get the most viewers over five seasons. Cool. Uh, so it's strategic, but it's also funny. It hits that uh, point. It's not quite a gateway game. It's the game just after you play a gateway game. So you okay. show someone tickets to ride, and then you show someone the networks, you know? Okay. So nice. it's just a little bit after that. Um, so and you kind of had that in mind as you were designing it. Like, this is the next step game for somebody. You know, it's funny. Maybe. When I was making it, I thought it was a lot heavier than it really was. Yeah. Like, people would play it, and they were like, this is really heavy. Mm-hmm. So my graphic designer was uh, is graph is he's a German guy named Heiko Gunther. He did graphic design for Potion Explosion. He did graphic design for Tesla versus Edison. He did graphic design for New Science. Yeah, he nice. is amazing. Cool. So I picked him because he has this ability to take this really complex set of information and distill it and make it super presentable. And I also like he's got this really bold style with a lot of colors. Yeah. Uh, I just think it's super eye catching. Uh, yeah. And it turns out he's awesome to work with. He is just a phenomenal guy. So his visual uh, design helped you simplify things a little People bit. played it and suddenly this game that they're like, oh this is really complicated. They're like, oh this is really straightforward. Yeah. Because he cleans it up so much. He's cool. absolutely remarkable. But thankfully, even after that, people are like, oh but this is a good weight, you know? So it hit this middleweight thing yeah. which I wasn't originally aiming for, but which it turns out is is exactly where the game needed yeah. to be. Uh, especially combined with the humor in the game because the shows are all really stupid. Especially the shows you start out with because you start out with terrible shows. I didn't want to miss that opportunity. I've seen other TV games that are like, you don't start out with anything. You don't start out with any TV shows. And that's just, it feels like a missed opportunity, right? Because you have to start somewhere. So in this game, you start out with shows like... uh, Unlocking your cat's psychic potential and <laughs> get to know your lower colon and emergency so broadcast test like, hour. Like UHF board game. It's exactly right. Now here's another funny part. Um, in Germany, you know, UHF didn't really reach out in Germany, but in the '90s there was this game called Mad TV, this video game called Mad TV that was about running a TV network, and the shows were all really stupid, just like the networks. So when I started showing it at at, at Spiel at Essen. People were like, oh my god, this is Mad TV, the board game. <laughs> so yeah. I'm so thankful Board and Dice, uh, they're a Polish company, they released the German version of the networks. And it's selling really well because it's Mad TV, the board game. So yeah. Funny anecdote about that yeah, uh, nice. versus UHF, the board game. Yeah, cool. And, uh, and then you also have a new game called Wordsy. Wordsy came out in... Um, it was on Kickstarter in 20, late 2016, so that okay. means it came out last year. Time has no meaning anymore. Yeah, right. I've sort of got yeah, a yeah. You know, You know how, like, you get to a certain age, 
like when you're younger, people are like, how old are you? I'm seven, I'm seven and a half. And the, I'm 13, I'm 21. And those are all like iconic ages. And then you get to like 28, 29, and people are like, how old are you? And you have to do math, like, wait a second, what year is it? When was I born? Because yeah. you're, you're not at that I iconic age thing. anymore. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so same thing, you know, over here, like I, I lost track of when Gabe's like, so yeah, Wordsy came out last year. Uh, it's been extremely popular, and I'm so just like the networks. It's multiple. It's in multiple printings now. Um, so this awesome. is a word game that favors longer words. Okay. So you put eight letters out on the table, and you don't need to use all of them because they're going to be like a jumble, and there's no way you can come up with a word using yeah. only those letters. So in Wordsy, you can add any letters you want to the. Um, to your word. You don't, you're not restricted to the letters on the board. Okay. So the game flatters longer words. So those two or three letters words you use in other word games are useless yeah. in words, okay. which uh, is kind of a design goal. So it feels very different than other word games, and it's really popular. Cool. Nice. Nice. Any other games in your in your backlog that you had mentioned to us? Or, or you have a new one coming out? So I have a Sorry. new old one coming new out. New old one coming yes. out. Okay. So my first game, Bad Medicine, uh, fell out of print. Uh, and I'm finally able to get it back in print, and that should be out around November. Okay. Uh, and cool. this is a party game where you're a pharmaceutical company pitching horrible drugs. <laughs> uh, so you're like making and pitching. It's really funny yeah. uh, because every card in the game has a little bit of a drug name, a little bit of a description, and a side mm. effect. And you have to choose three cards for your yeah. drug name, two cards for the description, and one card for the side effect. Yeah. Uh, and so it's you have to sort of juggle like what's my pitch going to be, and then you pitch based on what you got, you nice. know. And yeah. it's very funny. Now, if you're playing with five to eight players, you enter team mode, and in team mode, one player formulates the drug, passes it face down to their teammate, who's the marketing person, who has no idea what the lab did. So the cards get passed face down, and you can't actually look at the cards until you just flip the card oh to start God. your pitch. So you say, okay, this is my drug, and you flip the first three cards, and that's the name of the drug. Yeah. And the drug works by, and you flip the next card, look at the description, and off you go. You there know, you go. So it's really funny because you have to see those gears scramble uh -huh. in real time. It's yeah. a really, really funny game, and yeah. I'm, I'm really happy with you just every time it hits the table, it just gets laughs. Get into like side effects of those drugs and things, is that part of it? So here's the important thing about the game, and one thing I learned almost all of the side effects are really stupid. Yeah. You know, so I learned like, like prostate cancer is not, not really funny. There's no humor in it. Right. Briefly teleported to Mars. Now that's a side effect, you know, <laughs> you know, lactating toenails, you know, the, just all these ways that, yeah. so I actually made the game 16 and up because while this version of the game that's going to be out, hey, <laughs> It's the Mr. Luke Crane messing up my interviews, as always. <laughs> Mess up. <laughs> Gil Hova's great. Thank you, Luke. <laughs> That's Luke Crane from Kickstarter. Okay. Cool. Um, he runs the games division at Kickstarter. I've actually known oh. him a long time. Okay. So, cool. so yeah, he's awesome. Oh, nice. Cool. He's awesome. So that means i got to find him at an interview and mess with him. Yeah, you got to. you got to even it out now. Uh, so, so yeah, uh, the version of Bad Medicine that's coming out later this year um, is going to be, um, it, it's, it's not going to have any dirty cards in it. The original okay. version did. Okay. Um, okay. But there, I appreciate that. Yeah, that yeah. That means that you can play with a wider crowd of people. Well, they were marked. They were like, so here's one thing I learned. This is sort of a, I'm going to give you an in-the-weeds, inside baseball Kickstarter thing. Okay. So with Bad Medicine, that was my first Kickstarter campaign. We unlocked a bunch of stretch goals. 
And so uh, I put all those in the box. And I've learned since then, when you make stretch goals that add new content, you want to put them outside the box. You want to make them a separate expansion. Because when it comes time to reprint, if you've hit too many stretch goals, your unit cost is going to be extremely high. Yeah. So what you do instead is you take all the stretch goals, you bundle them into a separate expansion. When it comes time to reprint, you have an element of control over the base game. Yeah. Uh, and then you generate excitement because you've got an extra expansion now. Yeah, you know, yeah. so people are excited. So that's what I've done with the networks is I have all these little expansions that have come from the stretch goals. Yeah. And they're all thanks to my Kickstarter backers. My Kickstarter backers determine what they are, yeah. uh, both in terms of the money they put in and also in terms of sometimes actually literally making suggestions. Okay. So my backers have been, to a person, amazing. Absolutely cool. amazing. So it's been really, really great. Uh, so yeah, that's the, with Bad Medicine. That's what I learned. So and so the adult cards are now a separate product, um, and there's also going to be an expansion uh, called Second Opinion that's going to c- contain 90 new cards. Okay. So there's going to be 162 cards in the base game, uh, plus some extra cards that help you play. Uh, so I think 180 cards in all in the base game, and then uh, 90 cards in the expansion. Okay, cool. And uh, it seems like like. Um Humor and playfulness mark a lot of what you do. Is oh, that, no doubt. Is that fair? Yeah. Like, where does that come from? Do you know? A horrible childhood, <laughs> a horrible scarred childhood. I think is is that's that that's the heart of all comedy. Ultimately, yeah. Um, yeah I, I I'm not sure. My, I have a game hitting Kickstarter in February. Uh, it's. It's interesting because it's. It, I, I might have some opportunities to sprinkle humor here and there, but it's really going to be a much more serious gamers game. And I don't mean serious by like dour faces, but you know, it's yeah. really focused more on. Yeah, focused. yeah. Sure. Uh, which you know, I, I, I with formal ferret, I want to hit a spectrum. You know, I yeah. don't want to be hitting the same note over and over again. I have friends who uh, make games. And they make wonderful games, but a lot of times it's the same kind of note. They hit the same weight sure. repeatedly. Yeah. And I think that's great for them. That's the kind of game they want to make. But for me, I really like, and I admire designers like, uh, you know, Vlaja Hladl, who uh, designs all spectrums of games. He can go from like a light party game uh, to like a heavy strategy game and take all the notches in between. Yeah. He's really wonderful. And that's yeah. a... That's really cool. So I admire that skill, and that's a skill I hope to emulate in my designs. So also, it's, there's a practical nature to it. You know, with my booth, we're looking over at my booth. We got a bunch of people playing Wordsy, you know, which is a 20-minute word game that takes like a minute or two to explain. Uh, and then we got a bunch of people gathered around the networks, which is like you know a, a Gateway Plus strategy game. Yeah. And next year, uh, in some form, I'm going to have High Rise, which is a heavier strategy game. Um, and I'm also going to have Bad Medicine back in print, and that's going to be this really goofy, silly party game. Yeah. So, you know, I want to hit all of these yeah. different notes. That's great. That's cool. If you had to, well, in this maybe we'll maybe let's just talk about the networks. Uh, if you had, if if you didn't narrow it down to one thing that you hope players gain from their time with that game, with with the networks and the new expansion, what would it be? With the expansion, I the desire to play again. You know, and not just the kind of thing like I want to play this again 
uh, because uh, we got rules wrong, not, not because of that. I want it because, oh my gosh, this was so cool exploring this. I want to play it again with the same executive and maybe after two or three games with the same executive, oh, I get to try this executive now. This is cool. You know, I want them to try it because it gives you so many different looks into the yeah. game system. And there, it's such a robust platform to build off of that uh, there's so many different ways that you can try and play the game. And I think executives really adds that replayability. And I think that's the one thing I hope people take away from it is just this hunger to play again. Yeah, yeah. What about uh, Bad Medicine? What do you hope players get out of that? Gut busting. Like, I want them to be short of breath. Yeah, nice. And then uh, High Rise. That one's coming up before too long here, right? You'll it's going to be on Kickstarter in February. Okay. Cool. So what, what's the goal with that one? What do you want players to get out of that, that experience? The goal of that is, uh, so this is going to be a similar thing where uh, there, there's going to be these various neighborhoods that you can land on. Um, and they each take four cards, but those four cards are going to be different every time. And each neighborhood has ten cards, of which you only pick four for the whole game. So I want, want people, similar to executives, I want people to finish playing and then look at all these other cards and say, I can't wait to try this again with all these other cards cool. and see how that works. And I want to try it again with this strategy or with that strategy. This is a game that takes a multiple group of approaches, and there's all sorts of different ways to look at it. Cool. So I, that's what I'm excited about with High Rise. I really like that you're asking this question. I think, uh, seriously, um, I think in the past, I'd say, decade, a lot of designers had this mechanism or first look at games. Like, you'd ask, what do you want out of the game? People like were, would answer, I want to do a worker placement game. I want to do a deck building game. You know, and they would look at the yeah. mechanism. And I think in the past few years, people are starting to take a step back and saying, I don't want people to feel, you yeah. know? And they're realizing that things like deck building and worker placement, these are all tools, you know? Right. Yeah, so, yeah. like, uh, the example I always like to give, Agricola and Stone Age, right? They're both worker placement games. But they're such different games. Stone Age is a game of abundance. Uh, Agricola is a game of scarcity. The experiences are so different. Yeah. So to say that they're both worker placement games, there's some ca- commonality there, yeah. but it doesn't tell you anything about how they're how yeah. they're different. And yeah. I think people are starting to really um, explore that now and see that the, that's what these games are really about. They're about how they make you feel. So I really like that question. Yeah, cool. And uh, last question because I'm running out of battery here, <laughs> but I'll, but also uh, I, I just always like to ask this question to designers. Uh, why do you make games? What drives you? It's got to come out. I mean, I get physical discomfort if, like, uh, I, I have an idea and I can't get it out, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, uh, this is... It, it sounds pretentious, but it's, it's really true. I just feel like I have to... You know, it has to come out onto the table. Cool. So that's why I don't really have a choice. I'm yeah. like a hostage here. <laughs> nice, <laughs> nice. <send> help. <laughs> well, it's great. Great talking to you, Gil. I really great enjoyed it. You. It's yeah. nice to meet you, too. Kurt Covert, you, what is your role with Smirk and Dagger? I am the owner of Smirk and Dagger Games. Cool. And yeah. we were just talking earlier about how you're now also Smirk and Laughter. That's true, Can you yes. tell me a little bit about that story? Sure. Well, so when I started Smirk and Dagger Games, um, I wanted to really stand out in the industry. There were a lot of game companies at the time that, you know, we make great games for everybody, which yeah. is not really much of a mission statement. Right. And I had a marketing background, so I wanted to distinguish myself. So I thought long and hard about if I was going to stand for something, where would I want to plant the flag? And what I found was that I, 
when I looked at myself, I really loved games that were kind of take that in nature. Yeah. I loved them because it churns people's emotions up, gnashing the teeth and cursing people's names and laughing about it. Yeah. And I just think that's hysterical. So um, I decided that's what I was going to stand for because most of the games I loved, like Wiz War and uh, Lunch Money and all these other things, you know, were really focused on take that mechanics. Yeah. So I planted the flag and I created Smirk and Dagger the idea of the company before I even had a first title. Yeah. Well, once I had that first title, which was Hexx that we talked about a little bit before. That you designed. I did, yeah. So okay. I actually, for, at the first years, I designed everything. And okay. I remain still like the only actual person at the company. Okay. Yeah. Um, so um, in any case, after 14 years uh, of doing this, now I'm doing it full time for really the first time. Yeah. So now I'm doing five to six games a year, and they can't all be great backstabbing games because I'm not going to find that many terrific backstabbing games. The other yeah. thing is, um, as much it was a double-edged sword. If you loved one of my great backstabbing games, you chances are you're going to love almost everything I did. But if you don't like that style then I had nothing else for you. Yeah. Um, and at this point, I can't really afford to do that. Yeah. So I wanted to expand my shoulders, but I didn't want to dilute the Smirk and Dagger brand. Yeah. So I came up with Smirk and Laughter as a new imprint for the company where I could still, I could still do what I love about gaming, which is create emotionally-centered games, you know, games that kind of create a stir and a memory at the table, mm. a feeling, uh, you know, like... I, I want you to be immersed in the game. And, yeah. And when you leave the table, I want people to, like, continue to talk and tell stories about the experience. And it's not like, you know, oh, I optimized this move and moved that shit. I mean, it's like, that's... Yeah. It's... I like those games, mm -hmm. but I don't make those games because I I don't start with math. I start with what it, what is the experience at the yeah, table. Yeah, the emotion. Yeah. 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 So, um, so Smirk and Laughter now is all the kinds of games that create that feeling at the table but with a new palette of colors that don't have to be backstabby and nasty they can be heartwarming they can be you know like crazy party games they yeah. can be super serene zen they, any kind of any kind of game will do so long as it really does involve you in the experience of gameplay on more of an emotional level and so, an example of that is what we just played, yes. and that's uh, Before There Were Stars. Tell us a little bit about that. Like, give us the, the sort of the... I, mean, I know we just experienced it, but our sure. listeners won't have. So, what's the, the basic pitch of that game? What, what makes it unique? Sure. Well, Before There Were Stars um, is a storytelling game, and it's probably one of the more heartwarming storytelling games I've, I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that stems from the fact that it breaks a lot of the common tropes with storytelling games. I have always been frustrated by storytelling games for a couple key reasons. One being, I like to really craft a story. And a lot of those storytelling games are cooperative. Yeah. Uh, which means that someone's taking your story off track and it becomes something completely different than what you had envisioned. Yeah. Right. This game doesn't do that. Uh, the other thing is that a lot of it, you play for comedy, and the best joke will always get the points. Yeah. And that's great, and that can be a lot of fun, but it wasn't what I wanted to set out and, and, mm -hmm. and do. Now, I got pitched a game by, um, by Alex Cudler and Matt Fantastic, and the pitch of the game was, we've got this game where you're an ancient storyteller. 
a lore giver of your culture and you're inspired by the heavens. So you roll these star-pipped dice, and then there's 12 of them, so it creates a star field on the table. And now you can look at those stars, and there are constellation cards, and the points of the, the art, you know, like just like, you know, you'd, you'd look up into the sky, and the, and the old, you know, storytellers of lore would see the Big Dipper or, you know, Sagittarius. Yeah. Well, here, you might find the owl, the wall, uh, the cathedral, you know, all kinds of different, you know, icons. Yeah. Um, and you are able to, if you see those patterns in your stars and pull those into your story, now you've got two keyword concepts that you can tell a creation myth with. Yeah. So the first chapter is in the beginning. How did the fox and the book create all the known universe? Yeah. And you have about a minute to tell that tale. And it's it's kind of a cool experience. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, I've never played a game that encouraged you to kind of, you know, create a... You know, it, it, could, it could be very theological in some sense. You know, oh, yeah. like, a, or very religious in Very spiritual, concepts. sure. Yeah, very spiritual. Like, like that encourages you to create a creation account and, uh, you know... There's, uh, there's really, but you don't have to go that route. I, you I guess don't, there's all no. kinds of routes you could go, but I, I think that's what. the way I went, just because of my you know background and things like that. Yeah, but it was it was it was fantastic to see the different directions the stories went around yeah. the table. And I think but. that our stories were influenced by all sorts of cultures, fairy tales, yeah. um, and the I mean the cards influenced that. Yes, um, definitely, but they didn't. Um, I guess pigeonhole. Yeah, you're not story. confined by it, but right. they, they provide some sort of guide to help you. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, yeah. What you'll see uh, as you you know play with different groups and other players, uh, some will play it for comedy, some will play it um, as like a very iconic mythological cosmos. Um, right. I've seen people do a straight up like scientific origin of the universe, yeah. even with some of these. Yeah, sure. Um, and I've seen, um, you'll find, like, people who, like, imagine the culture that this would be. And it could be, like, you know, uh, a tribal death cult. Uh, yeah. It could yeah. be, you know, something that is almost like a, um, I don't know, you're talking about, you know, the, the, the goddess crying tears and filling the oceans. and you know, So yeah. all kinds of different yeah. things come out of it. Yeah. Yeah. Which I think is cool because, uh, you know, religion and theology and these things that can come that can come up in this game are things that we don't talk about very much anymore. We're, like, afraid to talk about uh, with, with our friends sometimes. And here's an opportunity to talk about some of those things in a way that's, like, you're forced to affirm each other. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, like just to accept each other. Because you're just story... In, in the context of the game, Yes, we're all equals. And yeah. we're just sharing a story. Yeah. And you just kind of have to take that story at face value and evaluate it on how you, you know, how you think that story is. Yeah. Uh, which is which is a really like I don't know. There's uh, around our table, and it may not be this. Sometimes it's probably just funny, right? Sometimes, but, yep, but, but around our table, there was a real like I don't know affirming of each other's uh, yeah. views. I think you know. Yeah, and so that was another interesting mechanic. Um, can you talk a little bit about how the mechanic of um, the acknowledging each other's stories and affirming in that last round how that came about? The very last part of the game, um, everyone scores uh, people's stories um, for a very specific reason. And it's not about being the best presenter, and it's not about um, 
the funniest joke. What it is about is who had the coolest moment. And but scoring is secret, so we don't really talk about our stories until the very end of the game. And um, the original game that I was pitched by by Alex and Matt um, didn't have that particular aspect of, of uh, but it was a natural occurrence of the game. When we would play the game after after we you know looked in our bags and calculated our score. Um, we would start talking about the stories and like, oh, what you yeah. do is cool. I really like that. And, but I wanted to formalize that so it was actually part of the game. So that no matter who played it, where it was, that was encouraged. So the last point of the game is a simple one-point bonus point. And what you do is that it starts with the host of the game or the owner of the game, and they're going to just like touch on one or two things they heard during the stories that they really enjoyed, and give that one bonus point to their favorite moment. And what this does is not only does it get people absolutely talking and and, and affirming each other, um, the result is that even if you were not a confident storyteller and you're like, oh, I don't know if I'm going to like this game, you know, you came in, you gave it a shot, maybe you didn't do great on the first round, but maybe around the third round, you all of a sudden put some disparate things together in an unexpected way that people yeah. are like, oh, I love how you did that. Yeah. So that's, yeah. that's the kind of thing that people will then recognize someone who like, was, might have struggled in the first round. Now, when, when we have this moment to like appreciate each other, People get recognized for all of those contributions, yeah. and and so now we heard six cool stories, and at the end, someone told me they liked yeah. what I did, and that is what makes it a heartwarming experience yeah, yeah. because you Definitely. walk away like, oh, this was kind of neat. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It wasn't yeah. just six people telling individual stories, but it became a social. Yes, experience. yes, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I had that experience just now because I thought my story was pretty weird and lame and and kind of morbid at the end anyway. Yeah. And then I heard all these nice things, like, or a couple, two or three nice things was enough to just go like, oh, well, it wasn't so bad. And yeah. like, I don't know, it was really nice. Yeah. Like, finishing touch. So. And, and I think, you know, in a storytelling game, especially about creation myths, um, which are so central to who we are as yeah. humans mm. and, and across the world. Yeah. Um, no, it's 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 part of who, the human experience, and and it's something that's deeply connected to us. And mm-hmm. I think that's also why it's so easy to tell the stories because we kind of understand what these myths are like and how they're structured. Yeah. So it helps us tell them because it's it's part of our cultures. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Cool. We really enjoyed it. Thanks so much for, for showing us the game. Oh, one question I do like oh, yeah. to ask designers is, why do you make games? What drives you to do this? Well, one, it started with a passion for playing games. And uh, then it, I got a lot of... Ex- I wanted to start contributing and creating around it. I, I just love creating in general in my life. Um, but why I still love it as much as I do today, as I did when I started, is that... As many times as I've like demo- demoed Hexex for 15 years now, I, yeah. it's still a brand new game every time I put it on the table. And yeah. the reason is because you will see a moment when you're teaching a game, even for the 11th billion time, someone will all of a sudden, their, eye, their eyes will light up and they're like, oh, oh, I see. Oh, this is cool. Like yeah. that moment is so gratifying uh-huh. to have either like invented that game and see how it connects with people or even when if it's someone else's creation and I've helped put it forward yeah. in the form it is 
it's just as gratifying to share that with someone because now you know you can see like oh I know exactly who I'm going to share this with you know yeah. and their excitement uh, is, is just contagious yeah that's cool yeah that's great well thanks so much for your time I you really bet. enjoyed chatting with you So it's Michael Fox the yep. second. Uh, no, the only reason we have the two on Ball Grand Geek is because there is another designer called Michael Fox. Oh, okay. Um, so anytime there are more than one of the same person, they'll yeah. number them. I no, I am the I am the only Michael Fox. Yeah. Okay. Good. Good <laughs> In my know. family, anyway. Okay. Cool. Cool. So uh, how long have you been making games? Uh, I've been doing games officially as a job. Uh, for about six odd years, yeah. Uh, but I've been making games since I was a kid. Okay. Like I, I was always one of those weird kids who would try and make solo modes for like Hero Quest. Yeah. Because I went to school at one side of London, and everybody else lived on the other side of London. Yeah. So it was like, all right, well, what am I going to do? Sit around on my own and, and do nothing? Uh, all right, well, I've got these board games. Well, I'll yeah. make some stuff so I can play myself. Cool. Yeah. And so, uh, do you still live in the UK? Yeah. Well. Um, yeah. I just moved back there about a year and a half ago. Okay. Uh, I spent a couple of years working in New Hampshire uh-huh. um, with uh, another games company called Game Salute, okay. um, cool. which I was doing everything there, it felt yeah. like at the time. Um, and then worked in a, sort of like the shipping division, learning a lot about how the logistics of games works. Yeah. Uh, but a lot of the stuff I learned there has been super useful. Uh, then a while ago, Rory gave me a call and said, are you interested in joining us? Yeah. You know, they wanted to shift away from their more educational kind of vibe with Story Cubes and the Extraordinaires yeah. uh, and wanted to launch basically headlong into the world of games. So yeah. they said, you know, I've known Marie for absolutely years. And uh, he said, do I want to come on board? And I just went, well, I just moved across the Atlantic two years ago. At that point, Trump had just won the election. Oh, gosh. Everything was on fire. Yeah. And it was like, I think it's probably going to be best if we get out. Um, yeah. So we moved back across the Atlantic again uh, for the second time in two years. And yeah. now I've got the greatest job on earth. That's cool. That's awesome. Um, so tell me a little bit about Holding On, because Holding On, The Troubled Life of Billy Kerr mm-hmm. uh, is one of your new games. And uh, I've never, I don't think I've ever seen a board game that I can remember about someone who's terminally ill. So yeah, tell me, give me the quick pitch about the game. All right, so the idea behind the game is, uh, from a development point of view, we wanted to make a game that was going to include poignancy, have that sort yeah. of emotional impact that you can get from like watching watching a movie, watching a, a reading yeah. a book, that kind of thing. Um, with gaming, there are a handful of games that we th- we feel have managed to sort of like push yeah. the wonderful emotional impact thing. Thinking like The Grizzled or yeah. uh, This War of Mine, or if you want to go from like the rom com side, uh, like Fog of Love, it's yeah. still an emotional right. response you're getting from it. Um, with this, it's like if Fog of Love is the romantic comedy, this is like the, the drama. Okay. Um, yeah. And the idea behind it is you are the staff, you're the hospital workers uh, in a facility where a gentleman called Billy Kerr was rushed in. Uh, you only know his name, you know that he's 60 years old, and you know that he had a massive heart attack on a flight from Sydney in Australia to London in the UK. The flight was diverted, he was rushed to your facility, so that's how we get around the whole where is this game taking place question, Uh, because it takes place wherever you are. So at the minute, we've got two games that are taking place here in Indianapolis. Uh, From a gameplay point of view, uh, you can boil it down to being a cooperative game where you are working together to discover the story of this guy. Mm-hmm. 
Um, you will have a shift manager every round. They will assign the other players to the three shifts that make up the game. And then the people who are assigned to each of those shifts will then decide what to do, what approach to take with Billy. Yeah. So you can either go down the physical care route, which is looking after his body, or you can go down the palliative care route, which is spending time with him, looking after his mind, yeah. having him tell you his stories. Yeah. Um, Ten link scenarios. You can't move on from one scenario until you complete it. Uh, but once you work your way through those ten scenarios, and you'll play very, very differently, uh, you will know the full story of Billy. And you'll see that sometimes not everything is entirely as it seems. Okay. Yeah, that's really interesting. What, what drove you to make a game with... Um, I mean, is that something that drives you in general when it comes to making games? Is making something that's going to be uh, more... Sad. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think emotionally resonant. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's, it's certainly something we have at the forefront of our minds. I mean, it, it's written on our T-shirts. We make yeah. games with heart. Yeah. Now, games with heart doesn't necessarily mean that we that everything we're going to make is going to be you know the sad game about the old man dying. Yeah. Um, we want games that are just going to elicit a response in people, yeah. um, whether that is a maybe a sometimes uh, thought-provoking or a poignant one, or a super joyous one or a creative response. Yeah. Um, the idea for holding on actually came uh, a lot of it from Rory's personal experience. Um, his mother is currently suffering from Alzheimer's and we had a big discussion about is it possible to sort of like show this experience in the world of gaming so yeah. I tried I tried to make a game where uh, we had memories were decaying um, and you were desperately trying like to, to, to sew them up to keep them to keep them alive to keep them going yeah but the might the problems were number one I was going home at the end of every night just feeling wiped out emotionally. It's a very, very hard subject to tackle. Yeah. And number two, from a playing point of view, while the game would function, there was no way to win. Yeah. You cannot beat Alzheimer's. Right. Like, you can stave it off. Yeah. It's basically like, how, how, how well can we lose was what we were looking at. So then we kind of, like, talked a lot, lot more, and then... Um, Rory was talking one night about how he lost his father, mm -hmm. especially like, talking about late nights sat up in the hospital as he was as he was dying. Yeah. And even though that is a sad thing that happened, there was still positivity in it. Yeah. They they got to talk, they got to discuss his life. And from there we then decided that well maybe we could take the idea of instead of mem like the destruction of memory we talk about the discovery of memory. Yeah. Uh, and that is sort of like the linchpin upon which Holding On is built. It's about talking to a person and finding out their story. It's like the extraordinary life of an ordinary person. Because yeah. everybody has had extraordinary things happen to them. Yeah. Uh, so that's how, we, you know, how, it, how it sort of like came yeah, about. Yeah, that's a really, that's a beautiful notion, I think. Uh, We're trying. I mean, yeah. other games that you'll see from us. I mean, Untold is obviously based on uh, Story Cubes, uh, but it gives you a, a much deeper storytelling experience. Yeah. So we wanted to, for that emotional thing, it was all about putting yourself in somebody else's shoes uh -huh. and how will they react to a situation that's going off all around them? How will they yeah. create a story? Uh, meanwhile, Blank is like a very, to a lot of people, it's a very simple and swift card game. Uh, but actually, if you scratch the surface on it, it's very much focused on creativity. It's essentially yeah. like a game designer's kit in a box. Yeah. Uh, the moment you start making weird things with it, like you start making strange rules in the game, and it becomes unique. It's about you and the people who 
you're sitting yeah. around the table with. All of a sudden, you're game designers. Yeah, which is <laughs> great. great. Game design's easy. Are. Nice We're and all simple. game designers in some ways. Uh, yeah, so that's cool. Um, I am curious, and this isn't, I'm not making this argument because I yeah. really like the idea of holding on, uh, but I think, like, so maybe the the parallel for me is, have you heard of the video game That Dragon Cancer? Yes, very much so. Okay, so I think there are some people that were like, why would I play that? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, why would I play a video game that I know is going to be sad or somber about a dying child? Yeah. Like, um, I'm sure some people may have brought that up with you. I was curious how you would respond to that. I entirely agree. It, I, I, I totally get it. Um, I played that Dragon Cancer, and it it, it broke. Is am I allowed to swear on this? Yeah. Sure. I, it broke my fucking heart. Yeah. Um, it is an incredible experience. Yeah. It's it's beautiful, and everything from the story it tells, the music that it, uh, the music throughout was just. I mean, I've got goosebumps just thinking about it right now. Yeah, me too. Um, but we've always thought we've actually compared like the things we're doing with holding on to things like films and comics. Yeah. Um, if you think about how comics were when they initially came out, they were seen as this childish pursuit. They were just frivolous. Yeah. You read it, you throw it away. That's why you know. That's why nobody has any copies of like you know Action Comics number one or whatever because they were all chucked away in the bin. But then stories started coming out like Watchmen, like Sandman, yeah. like um, hell, even something like Scott Pilgrim. Um, they're telling very different stories. They're grown up. Same with movies. When 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 cinema first kicked off, remember that we've all seen that footage of like the people watching the train coming towards them, and yeah. then them diving out of the way yeah. because it was a distraction. It was it was just a sideshow. Yeah. And for a very long time, games have had this this thing of they're just they're just a thing you do for entertainment. But we watch sad movies. We read books that make our hearts break. Why can't games now have this this same thing, this golden era, yeah. where stories like this can be told, where stories like The Grizzled can be told, yeah. um, where stories like Holding On can be told? Yeah. Um, we've had people come up to us and sort of like, "Why are you making you know this this sad game about you know one old man dying?" It's just like you play Pandemic yeah. every week, yeah. where billions of people are wiped off the face of the globe. Yeah, you don't think anything. And it's like, yes, yeah, just a thing. People, like, like, we're here at Gen Con. 600 games were released here at Gen Con, of which, like, what, 20% of them are, like, war games or have yeah. sort of, like, some element of, like, killing masses of amounts of people. Yeah. This isn't a game about killing. This is a game about care. This is a game yeah. about heart. This is a game about life. Yeah. While the focus is on, on death and, 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 and sadness, there are moments of joy. There are moments yeah. of happiness. Um, and we're delighted that people are just into this experience it's it's yeah and there's it's a crazy opportunity there too because in the context of a board game um i mean even to compare it to that dragon cancer where that's sort of a, a very personal experience and yeah. you can go talk about it with somebody and that's a wonderful thing to do and i think a lot of people did that with that game but with this you're forced to sit across the table with the people that you're you know, doing this with it's, 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 it's lovely that yeah experience and i think we don't force ourselves in our, in our culture today there's like so much entertainment around us right uh -huh. we don't force ourselves to have those kind of like meaningful experiences where you think about hard things like death yeah. or about um, 
you know, our, our mortality and that yeah. kind of thing together, which I think can be really healthy. Yeah, I mean, it's a... Um, we've, we've kind of discussed this a lot, Rory and me and the rest of the team back at the office. Um, the Irish, even though I, I don't sound it, I, am, I'm, I was born in Ireland. Okay. Uh, the Irish have a very... I think healthy attitude to death yeah. like somebody dies they're in the ground pretty quickly everybody is drunk just celebrating their life yeah. whereas I, I grew up in um, in London and death is with the British and the English particularly is a thing that isn't talked about it's a thing that's in the side room you close the door on it and you can't right. you can't mention it yeah. um, and it's it's very strange. I, I, I know there's um, there's a uh, movement called Death Positive, which uh, I did a lot of research into while I was while I was doing this, and so much of the stuff that I read was just all like, holy crap! Like this is this is Irish. This is what we do. Yeah. This is a thing. Um, there is um, a wonderful YouTube channel that I absolutely love called Ask a Mortician, okay. and the lady who hosts the channel is um, she's a death positive mortician. Um, she's written like some excellent books about how how people should sort of like accept their like cultures that accept death into their lives yeah. and make it a part of how things work. It, you know, it's going to happen to us all. Yeah. Much as I'd love to be able to download myself into a computer and survive forever, yeah. the likelihood of that happening is probably only 50-50. Right. Maybe a little bit less. Um, <laughs> but I would... Yeah, we'll see. We're all going to... We are all going to... You know, these meat shields of ours are going to go away eventually. Um, so why not try and integrate as positive an experience into that process as possible yeah. um, I've had people when they've played this game react incredibly positively uh-huh. um, they've walked away from the table saying I need to go and talk to my grandparents I need to oh, yeah. but I've also had people walk away from the table uh, after having punched me very hard in the shoulder yeah. <laughs> like saying basically fuck you for making this game and making right. me feel feelings yeah um, but both of those are, I feel, spectacularly valid responses. Yeah. I, I, I want our games to make people feel something in here. Yeah. Feel something in their chests and go, Christ, games can do stuff. Yeah. My, and I, I will play happily. Like, one of my favorite games is freaking Acquire. Yeah. A dumb game <laughs> with no theming in it, basically. Yeah. It's like, here's numbers, here's shares, do that. I love games where I get to push cubes around a board. But now, why can't we do games like this? Yeah. It's great. Yeah. I'm, I'm delighted that we've been given the opportunity for it. Yeah, no, I agree. I think that's. I think it's. Uh, I think it's really encouraging that you're doing it because I don't see enough of this. It's, it's changing. But yeah. I don't see enough of this type of thing in the tabletop space. So it's encouraging that y'all are stepping out. So. Yeah, I mean, games are evolving, yeah. and games will continue to evolve. We know that this isn't going to be a game for everybody. It is, you know, gaming itself is a niche market. Yeah. And this is going to appeal to a niche within a niche. But it's been very gratifying at shows like Origins, UK Games Expo, and now here at Gen Con, to have people coming up saying they're excited for it. Yeah. You know, and it's like I turn around and what, you're excited about the sad old man dying game? What the hell? <laughs> um, and and it's, it's always really weird, like, when the game is finished, you sort of, like, ask, well, you kind of don't ask, want to ask people, did you have fun? Yeah. It's a game still. It's still hopefully a positive right. experience. So, um, But people like, go, yeah, I really enjoyed it. That was a lot of fun. It's yeah. like, cool. <laughs> uh, let's see a little bit later down the line, see what you take away from it. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Uh, one last question I like to ask designers, and you've kind of tapped into this a little bit already, but, but why do you make games? What drives you to do this? 
I need to put food on the table, I guess. Um, why do I make games? That's not a bad reason. Nah, but it's, it's really, it sounds really <laughs> corporate and crass. Um, yeah. All right. I am a genuinely terrible artist. I can't draw for crap. Yeah. My wife is like the artist of the family. Uh-huh. And her stuff is stunning and beautiful. I can't write a book. I can't make a film. But what I am really good at is numbers and mechanisms and balance and then taking that and working with incredible people to weave this these beautiful things Um, I I make games because I want to see people like this sat across the table like hunched over the cards they've got in front of them like going what the hell are we going to do to get out of this situation whether it's a co-op game competitive game RPG, whatever. I, I, I make games to see people's faces do this. Yeah. Go, what the crap are we going to do now? <laughs> yeah, um, and then the joy that they get in their eyes when they work out how they're going to get through a problem. Yeah. Yeah, I make games to make life difficult for people. Perfect. <laughs> I like it. That's awesome. Well, thanks so much, Michael. No worries, I appreciate it. So, uh, Rory, what's your last name? Rory O'Connor. Okay, cool. And you are from Hub Games. Okay. Yeah. And you and you grew up. You're from Ireland. Is that yeah. right? Is that what uh, so, Michael's telling me? Yes. Um, I'm myself and Anita, my partner, are the co-owners, okay. and co-founders of Hub Games. Um, cool. Also, creator of Rory Story Cubes. Yeah. Um, I grew up in Dublin originally. Yeah. Um, lived in the west coast of Ireland, and then after a failed attempt to emigrate to Canada, I came back and moved to, yeah. to Belfast for a couple of years. And like 19 years later, I'm still there. Oh, cool! Wow, awesome. Well, glad glad you're here. Uh, I already talked to Michael a little bit about what holding on the troubled life of Billy Kerr is. So, uh, so, I, so I think our listeners will have an idea of what the game is about. But he did mention to me that some of it's kind of based on some of your personal experience. Would you be willing to, to share a little sure. bit about that? Yeah. Um, I mean, the whole idea from the game idea for holding on came from a conversation like an idea was being pitched by a friend um, based on Rory Story Cubes that was kind of a Don Quixote type thing where the guy was on an adventure in his mind and you didn't know whether it was real or not and somehow it clicked with me about Alzheimer's and my mom has Alzheimer's and so I was like okay actually I want to make a game that explores that idea of has an element of poignancy to it that um, you're playing this game where it's the reverse of Ticket to Ride. Yeah. So you've got these memories that are linked and you could randomly deal out cards and people would make associations between the cards. Um, but as the memories faded, you'd feel like, <gasps> like oh, oh yeah. my God, they're forgetting their childhood or something. Um, and Michael worked on this for a while and it was just, I think, really hard to make it click. Yeah. Um, and because they were hard to find it, like the fun in the game. Yeah. Um, you know, and we kind of said, okay, you can't win in a game against Alzheimer's. You can only yeah. like lose well. Right. Um, but Michael had developed this mecha- this uh, mechanic of the tableau of memories. Mm-hmm. We thought, okay, this, there's something really neat about this. And I still wanted to keep that poignancy. I really wanted to make a game where people like kind of got sucker punched when they were playing the game. Um, we said, okay, well, let's keep the idea of this person, but they're at, they're at the end of their life and 
they're holding on to these regrets and yeah. so it's this idea of you have to try and get to know the person and kind of peel back the layers of their life and challenges your assumption about who you think this person is yeah. as well and when we looked at that just framework we we thought oh my god we can tell so many stories about like identity um, relationships yeah. and we've all got stories in our families of like these hidden stories from the past yeah um, and when a colleague played a really early version and she said this makes me want to go and talk to my granddad yeah. we thought right that's why we're making this game yeah if we awesome. make a game that prompts someone to kind of yeah. rethink their relationship with someone we thought we've done something yeah. good with this um, so, so also a lot of elements that fit into the game um, are kind of based on the experience of being with my dad who he died of cancer in 2002 yeah. and being with him during those kind of last mm. days and uh, like weeks and months and even like hours yeah um, and so that kind of inspired it so I, we kind of feel like I can tell this story because I've we've been through some of this personally yeah. um, so there's a you know a degree of um, care in how we present the yeah. idea how we balance the challenge between providing medical care and, and palliative care. Yeah. And that's been a really interesting thing, especially here in the US, where I think the medical system doesn't, from what I am hearing back from people, yeah. the medical system doesn't put a whole lot of emphasis on palliative care. Right. It's become a bigger thing in the UK and in Ireland in recent years. Um, so that's been kind of interesting because people want to win by saving Billy. Right. All right the way you save Billy is you help him yeah. help him doesn't necessarily mean keeping him alive right. um, it's helping him come to terms with his past yeah. um, and that kind of like as I'd say like wrecks people's heads about yeah. you know no 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 but I should be rewarded for like right. providing medical care and like no that's not how life works sometimes right. you have to be with someone in the pain and you know mm. that's actually what's needed at yeah, the same yeah. time yeah it's interesting because that's uh, I know the games industry is rapidly changing and, and diversifying but I think we tend to think of board games as competitive and as like I'm going to defeat you or, or we're going to work together to defeat the board mm. uh, but it's a lot of like um, you know that, that's sort of a, a base mechanic yeah. in a lot of games whereas what you're doing feels like uh, aimed almost more at like affirming the dignity of other human beings uh, is, is that something that drives you? Yes. Um, my background is in like uh, conflict resolution, in like kind of personal development, and really helping people to think differently about themselves and their world. And that definitely informs my ideas for for games. So I'd always start with theme first, usually, yeah. and and then try to create a think about a mechanic that's going to help faci facilitate that. Um, as part of my kind of training, I trained in something called spiral dynamics, which is a kind of a model about how we make sense of the world and how we encounter problems. And in doing that, it forces us to kind of re-change how we think about the world. Yeah. And I've kind of mapped that to games. And you can actually see, like, map the evolution of games to kind of spiral dynamics. So going from luck-based games, um, where it's almost like magical play, yeah. You're, you're, you're rolling the dice and things happen and you've no real control over what happens so that's like kind of early humans yeah. um, where the gods do things and you just have to deal with the consequences then you've kind of got like real risk based games where you're gambling 
Yeah. Where it's like, if you take the risks, you can kind of win the odds. Yeah. Um, and then you've got very much rule-based games, which would be like the rule, roll and move type games. And then almost in reaction to that is the Euro type game, where it's like, no, no, if I use my smarts, I can apply strategy and I can come out on top afterwards. Coming from that then is like, well, I don't want to compete anymore. So can't we all just get along as humans? Which yeah. is the emergence of cooperative games right. as well. And so I think that's kind of where we've been at from like 2008, those kind of games starting to emerge. But then the kind of next almost like stage of human kind of development and thought process is like um, the idea of you can have it all but not at the expense of others. So it's about knowing when to be competitive and when to be yeah. cooperative. Uh-huh. And it's actually a really hard mechanic yeah. to introduce. Um, but I'm going to put it like lay claim that that's going to be you know you see inklings of some of those games coming out I don't think they've ever they they quite achieve that kind of value system yeah. but we'll start to see more games of that yeah. I think coming out in the future can you think, I'm just curious can you think of another example of a game that does that that maybe you like um, and inspired you oh not right now I can't think yeah. of it I, I remember seeing games going oh it's close to that kind of concept yeah. um but, I remember last year at Gen Con, I played this um, War of Mind. So that's probably actually one I would have come back to. because yeah. I, And that's more from, I'd, I mean, I discussed that from the perspective of like Scott McCloud. Um, so he's an amazing comic book writer and theorist on comics. And he had this, uh, he wrote this book called Reinventing Comics. And he talked about how comics were considered entertainment. Um, in the US like for a long time but in France and in Japan it was exploring a far broader range of of topics and I kind of for me I liken where we're at with games board games to comics in the US in the 80s where we started to see like Mouse uh, The Watchmen V for Vendetta um, exploring like different ideas um, and they weren't just entertainment Um, and so I think actually when uh, This War of Mine was announced I actually got really frustrated because I was like, this is the kind of stuff I'm meant to be making. Yeah. You know, and I, I was kind of like jealous that they'd kind of like beaten me to it. Um, but it kind of acted as a catalyst for me to go, right, yeah. I, I want to be part of what's happening um, and kind of be part of leading it rather than just following along behind yeah. afterwards. Yeah. So, I mean, that's an amazing game, what they've done. Yeah, that's cool. That's cool. Uh, if you had to narrow it down to one thing, what do you hope players gain from their time with holding on? Ooh. Um, what do they gain? I think it will ch- hopefully change their the way they kind of like think about maybe death and dying and care. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I think hopefully it might ch- shift how they maybe we'll think about the regrets they might end up with and maybe kind of you know if someone said I kind of changed how I was doing things in response to when I discovered what Billy's regrets were and that they saw themselves in that I think that would be a fairly like amazing thing to happen yeah that's cool that's awesome and the last question I like to ask designers is why do you make games what drives you to do this Oh, fundamentally, I mean, like, a couple of things. One is uh, to get people to think differently about themselves and their world. So that's what I'm always about. And I use uh, myself, my partner, Anita, to say, like, games are our medium. Yeah. So we're kind of, we're not quite artists, but games are the way that we can 
uh, create sand pits for people to play in and explore different ideas and hopefully as a result they'll experience something that gets them to think differently as a result of it. Yeah, that's awesome. That's great. One of the things that kind of drives this podcast and the website that I that I now run called Love Thy Nerd is this desire to demonstrate to the world that there is more to games uh, than just entertainment, mm-hmm. you know, that it's possible to have meaningful experiences that uh, affirm us as human beings and that kind of thing in, in, in this space. Um, if we'll take the time to notice, yeah. you know, and so I really appreciate you guys' approach. I think it's really, it's really lovely. And I, I think it's actually really challenging within games because they're a sandbox. It's not like a game, like a computer game, where I can guide you through a kind of linear experience right. and come out the other end. Same with a book or a novel. I have to give you agency within that space. Yeah. And if you ever feel like I'm directing you in any way, you're going to be dissatisfied as a player. So there's a really difficult challenge. For, for getting people to think differently and still giving them agency within that. And I find a problem with a lot of games is they want people to think differently, but they railroad them to have that experience. Right. Whereas I'm always saying if you're designing a game that you want people to think differently, you need the player to be allowed to go at completely at odds to what you wanted, yeah. but them, from them to maybe discover that, well, actually, there's a benefit to this other approach, but it's not. it can never be the only win condition for the game. Because right. then you're just beating people over the head, yeah, you know, with yeah. your idea. So it should be an element of discovery rather than like dictation to them. Yeah. Cool. Well, this is great. Thanks so much for your yeah. time. Yeah, I really enjoyed checking out. You have been listening to Humans of Gaming, a production of Love Thy Nerd. If you have enjoyed the show, don't forget to like, rate, and review the show wherever you may be listening. Don't forget to check out our other show, Free Play, featuring discussions of complete randomness involving gaming, community, and whatever hosts Bubba Stalkup, Matt Warmbier, and Kate Katawaki deem worthy of your earbuds. Theme music by Jay Tholen and used by permission. Singular Radio by Joaquin Sandoval, used under Creative Commons 4.0.